Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Money Movement. I'm joined today by Anatoly Yakovenko, co-founder of Solana Labs, and someone who I have just immense respect for and you know, really happy to have you here and uh, lots we can talk about. Awesome to be here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So it's been a, you know, it's been a big year for Solana. It's been a big year all around for <laughs> a lot of people. I think it'd be maybe just helpful to start just, you know, state of Solana. What are the kind of critical metrics that you're looking at when you think about KPIs, what's important and where you guys are at today? So some of the most important things are like real users, humans using the network. And we see that like with fandom and on-chain activity, it's to about 2 million monthly active users. And we're seeing the daily active user count sometimes break what Polygon and Ethereum are seeing, like 300,000 or so daily active users, signers, as we call them. Signers, active signers. Yeah, right. active signers. And that, that to me is a really kind of important metric because it's signals that there's more real human activity, more people doing something on this chain that, that's valuable to them. That's really exciting. Some of those, some of the things we saw like over the last year, and this didn't even take the whole year, uh, like things like Metaplex, which launched um, May last year, there's uh, over a million users with NFTs in their wallets now. Uh, I think close to eight or eight million NFTs minted. I think it's minting at like, I don't know, I, I forget, but like a multiple of what, what the number of mints on Ethereum in terms of like actual NFTs launching. So that has been the most surprising use case <laughs> to me yeah. of, all, of all the things. <laughs> yeah, no, JPEGs are hot. <laughs> but no, in all, in all seriousness, I mean, it, I mean, obviously, like scalability. This is where you know the strengths of Solana are really showing, right? High performance user experience, unit economics that work, and so you know, app developers and creators are attracted to that, obviously. And part of the you know one of the most important kind of I would say lagging KPIs is the number of stable coins issued, like USDC, and that's been really important to see because. That to me also tells me that these users have demand for hard currency, which mm -hmm. is a somebody has to put those dollars in a bank, right? And that that's yeah. a very hard thing to do yeah. <laughs> at scale. And that's I think like over four billion already, and uh, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, we've been collaborating now for I don't know a year and a half or whatever it has been, but I think um, we continue to see more and more projects that are being built that are building on USDC on Solana and people are are really starting to think about this as you know lighting up you know mainstream applications mainstream payments and uh, I know we, we can talk about Solana Pay and we can talk about that use case specifically but it seems like when people talk about you know how are we going to actually fulfill this promise of like digital cash and digital cash payments that are usable on the internet. It feels like today, USDC on Solana is a really great example of that. And sort of how do you solve the user experience problem above and beyond just the transaction settlement? Yeah, for sure. And a lot of that has to do with what users want. And I think fundamentally, a lot of users want the safest, for payments specifically, they want the safest possible dollar. 
right? Like they want, (laughs) and there's a lot that goes into that word safe. And like, how do you use, because there's platform risk, more contract risk, wallet custody risk, but also, you know, on your side, the risk of those assets and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're trying to do our part to uh, establish trust and, and credibility and, and give the market really robust infrastructure for getting access to that. Yeah, for sure. I'm interested. um, You see a lot of different things that are happening in the developer community, right? I think so much of of your success has been just like being active in developer communities, supporting them, running hackathons, bringing people together. And actually, maybe it's a good it's a good KPI for you to talk about, which is like you know when you you know start. I, I remember your earliest hackathons. And you know, kind of where that was. There were a hundred teams yeah. <laughs> that, that finished something. Yeah, yeah. I, know. I know. But like, where you guys have what is it that's just just launching now? It's called yeah. Riptide. Riptide. So, yeah, we saw like what I can only call like true exponential growth and developer activity from that first hackathon, where there were a hundred teams, about fourteen of them had something used, like they built something. Yeah, I remember and then, I was a judge. Yeah. <laughs> it just started kind of doubling basically every hackathon. The one right before this one was had more teams finish a project than all the other hackathons combined. That to me was really, really cool. That was close to the 370 teams. Riptide, we're, you know, are, are like, can we break a thousand? Can we get a thousand teams to build something and like compete for the prizes and get funding and things like that? And a lot of that means that we have to now look outside of like, we have to, you know, initially it was almost a little easier because you can kind of see what Ethereum was doing. And then, okay, we need DeFi, we need NFTs or other stuff and just build reference implementations there. But now we've matured to a point where I think Solana is leading on some of the innovation. So Solana Pay is one of those things. We haven't seen a breakout payments application in crypto. Yeah. And why isn't there like a true Venmo competitor in crypto? Everyone, there should be at least one, right? That's trying. (laughs) That was the first product we ever built was was Circle Pay. and, And that was like, we were doing like, dollars over Bitcoin. And yeah. that, that, that had some scalability problems. <laughs> but now, I mean, now it's just, it's wide open. And we certainly see a lot of startups that are trying to use our APIs to then in turn build wallet products. But do you feel like, like at Riptide, are you going to, do you feel like you're going to see a lot of payments related projects that are, that are being kind of built? Yeah, we saw right when Solana Pay was announced. So Solana Pay is a very, very simple thing. It, it's, yeah. it's literally just BIP21. Like if, if you know what BIP21 yeah, is for Bitcoin. Back yeah. in the day, back it's, in the day. Yeah. It's for the folks that don't know what that is. It's a very simple URL specification of how to request a payment from a wallet. So it's a way for a merchant to generate a QR code, which is a URL link. That thing links, tells the wallet, hey, I want to pay this particular merchant for this item with this amount of dollars. Right. And it autofills that in the UI and that that integration makes it easy for merchants to request you for stuff, right? And it's not rocket science, right? Anybody could have built this, but we found that like when there's sometimes an opportunity for us to build a standard, like like Metaplex was incubated at Solana. And again, very simple thing. This is the standard NFT. And that spurs a ton of development and innovation and grows way beyond what we initially saw. And 
that already kind of happened surprisingly. Like as soon as it was announced, we saw people hack up Square point of sale yeah, uh, units to, to accept Solana Pay and uh, and stuff like that. I think uh, hundreds of merchants reached out like almost immediately. There's a lot of demand for alternative payment rails because of how, like I think I think the way that payment systems are set up right now is that, is that they're very much set up with the putting merchants at a disadvantage in the entire kind of rate in the entire process of getting paid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, um, there's a lot we could talk about on that topic, but like, it's kind of like in the earlier generations of the internet, like if you were a content creator, you couldn't have a direct relationship to people. You had to go through, you had to get published in a magazine or you have to get published. You, you got to go through a book publisher who had distribution at Barnes and Noble or record labels or TV networks or cable distribution, whatever, all this distribution was the thing. And, and so, you know, the internet basically said, actually, no, you can have a direct relationship. And that was even the case with businesses too, right? If you created a product, you had to find distribution through retail, but then you could actually just build a website and have direct distribution, or you could use a marketplace and have like global distribution. And, and these, these kinds of things emerged in all these areas. And in some ways, payments is the same thing, right? Like, it seems like a business can directly take a payment, but they're not. They're like, if I walk into a store and, and give a $20 bill, that is in fact a direct payment. Like there's no intermediary. It's just there and it's final settlement. I know I have it, right? But if you want to take a payment, you've got like seven intermediaries between you and the actual money. And you've got all these other layers of incentive systems and complexity. And, and so in some ways, even though to someone who might take their phantom wallet and scan a QR code and confirm a transaction to the pay the person paying, okay, that feels like my Apple Pay or whatever. And so to them, it's like, okay, I'm doing this. But to the merchant, it's as good as cash. Yep. And that's powerful, right? That's really, really powerful. And that's kind of exactly the the feedback that we've been hearing is is like people really, really want that that power, like on the merchant side. And yeah. That was to me surprising. I didn't kind of put the two together because I'm not a, I'm not deep in the payments world, but yeah. it makes so much sense. Like this yeah. is really where the intermediaries were who they really hurt right now in the entire financial system is the seller, right? The people yeah. that are trying to, to sell. And the users are not aware of this, right? It's kind of hidden from them. And that results in higher prices and for everybody and kind of it's just a right. right. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, there's going to be so much motivation for businesses to do this. I, I guess it, you know, kind of maybe tying it back to one of the other questions about you know what's going on at Riptide and your hackathon and what are you seeing out there and payments is what do you think are the if you're sitting here talking to developers and 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 others who are listening, what do you think the problems are to solve if you're building a a Solana compatible wallet or payment experience or like what are the problems that developers should be focusing on solving i have a few ideas but i'm very interested in yours i think ux making it kind of simple enough for casual users to use which yeah. means that you have to be careful about security and and telling users that they probably shouldn't store tens of thousands of dollars in this wallet if you're the simpler you make the security assumptions, the more you're, you kind of have to start communicating to users about the limits of what you should trust this particular security model to. And that, that's a very tough challenge. I think UX wise, 
there needs to be a reason for a consumer to use this over Venmo. And that's a very hard kind of like, you know, Venmo has a moat, right? Everyone kind of has it. <laughs> and it's very hard to break into. So you got to find your niche, right? And there are niches where there are users that are not served by Venmo at all. You know, surprisingly, Cash, uh, like the Score Cash app has uh, is pretty popular and, and, yeah. and a ton of places where Venmo isn't. So f- finding those niches and like... I think the monthly active users on Cash app is higher than Venmo, actually. Yeah, but I didn't know that, but that's... yeah. That's surprising to me. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a that's a like West Coast thing or something. Yeah, yeah, maybe the advantages I think are like where can you start using this application where you can do stuff that Venmo can't, and yeah. that could be yield products. That could be like you know, here's a rewards point builder for right. your your simple like go click next, and now you have rewards points like for everybody, right? <laughs> yeah. It seems like that. Yeah, I totally agree. And and it seems like, you know, this is also one of the objections that I've heard in the past around, okay, if you solve the problem of making it like a fast, cheap payment, the users don't care because the users want rewards or the users want this. Now, if a business is able to receive this and they're saving 3% or they're saving 2% or, or wherever it is, they actually might be able to afford to provide incentives. And then what are those incentives? Are those incentives like USDC cash back? Are those incentives actually, you know, there's a a form of reward token that's an NFT and that then you're getting this credential and you can accrue more value from that and then have different forms of affinity. So it seems like the intersection of like stablecoin payments, NFTs, like working together could actually create incentive models for and actually build customer relationships that are better than the abstract, like I get my chase points or whatever. Like you could actually build something that's more durable as a business by leveraging NFTs and crypto payments. And this is where I think like, you know, I have like a lot of crazy ideas. You, you know, every time you buy a sneaker, you can have like the crypto kickers mint that sneaker for you, yeah. and, you can, and you can get that NFT. And that would be really, really cool. Right. It, but you have to find the right, that kind of right user and that right product where the stuff works and not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like NFTs, like a ticket is an NFT and a coupon is an NFT. Like all these things are essentially NFTs. Right. And so I think it's, it's people starting to say, Hey, actually I'm going to build a, a coupon protocol and anyone can implement the coupon protocol and the coupon protocol it supports USDC and it supports NF it generates a particular type of coupon NFT. And, you know, Imagine, you know, that maybe someone could do that at your hackathon, (laughs) you know, and then, you know, you mash these things up and and now you start to do something pretty interesting. There's a lot of things like that, that I think that are possible for sure. Yeah. I mean, another one is, is, you know, the whole people like credit, right? So, so one of the other reasons why people use credit cards is that they like credit, Um, you know, they like to borrow. And, you know, I think there's a, a whole question of, you know, are there, you know, it's the buy now, pay later phenomenon. And are there ways to build, you know, like on-chain BNPL leveraging things like verifiable identity credentials, verifiable credit scores that can be proven to a a smart contract that then actually would enable us a DeFi protocol to underwrite someone for credit at a just-in-time payment. And that could, again, be a protocol that, could then be woven together by people building applications like this. 
That is, a, I think, one of the most exciting opportunities, but that's a, a serious undertaking, right? That's a start, that, that's a venture backable startup. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Pl- there's plenty of people that will back you, but the, <laughs> but it's not going to be easy. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that's one of the most, I think, exciting ones that I feel could revolutionize finance. I'm just wondering where do you guys see Circle is that something like these features that you guys would ever want to build? Or are you looking for companies to kind of build on top of Circle? You know, I, I think it's sort of all of the above. Like, I think our general view is, you know, first, we just want to like promote really wide adoption of things like USDC and other, other standards that we think are important, standards in identity, you know, things like Solana Pay or payment protocol standards. Like, it's just important that, you know, there's developers can just use these things and build all kinds of things, right? And we want to support that and invest in that. At the same time, we definitely want to try and solve some problems for businesses and you know be able to provide services through a Circle account and Circle APIs that deal with some of these problem spaces. So I think we're both interested in just seeing proliferation of, of creativity around these problem spaces because at the end of the day, that that is really valuable for making this work. And then, you know, secondly, yeah, we, we certainly want to continue to add value ourselves. You know, we do today provide, you know, payment APIs and payout APIs. You know, our payment APIs can handle payments with crypto, but also payments with legacy rails. And I think we'd like to see kind of payments with crypto rails really improve. But I, I guess our view is that it's not something to do alone, right? Because this is only interesting is if there's if there's a lot of interoperability and people can, you know, anyone who creates a digital wallet or a smart contract, a point of sale device or whatever, that stuff should should be non-proprietary, right? So I think we're interested in creating standards and also implementing them ourselves. What are the challenges with like an on a credit system, like to go to build this? This is something that I've been noodling in, in my head, but I it seems like there's a lot of pieces that you need that are still not there yet in, in, yeah. in blockchain. I think that you know, if you wanted to do all of these things on top of crypto primitives and smart contracts and have user-controlled wallets that could do this, there are a lot of things that are needed, right? You need, I think you need provable identity. So you need to have like identity attestations that you could get an identity from a Coinbase or a FTX or a Square or whoever. And you could then, you know, kind of go out to a service and one, just know, okay, I'm dealing with a real human. Okay. And then I think you also need the ability to have ways to have kind of claims about an identity that are cryptographically proven that can be presented as credentials and verified by a smart contract without privacy leakage, but like, I want to prove a credit score on chain. It's a little bit like the Oracle problem, but I think it's more specific to identity. And, and so I think that's like a really important building block. And I think when you have that building block, then people can start to, to build applications or smart contracts that can start to make decisions based on real world data and identity, which you kind of need to do when you're underwriting someone for credit, right? And then, you know, I think... I think in theory, just like you have liquidity providers on DeFi protocols and you have risk takers on insurance pools on DeFi protocols, like you could imagine there being essentially liquidity providers and risk takers that are providing unsecured underwriting kind of, but but having a little bit more data to be able to do that 
So that's like a next piece. But I think there are, if you look at what's been implemented in DeFi to date, you can see some patterns that could be applied there. I think one of the things is, is actually, you know, kind of the recurring payment problem, which is the equivalent of like, there's a smart contract that has access to balances that I can sweep from in an automated way, you know, just like whatever, if I use a firm and I've linked my bank account and they, you know, take a certain amount of debit from my, from my bank, you know, to pay down my balances, you know, sort of permissioning of sweeps on smart contracts and in a digital wallet on a recurring basis. So I think that's kind of what needs to get, you need to solve those kinds of problems. I think, but those seem like solvable problems. Do you think consumer protection on like returns and stuff like that is critical for this? Like, I, I'm trying to like understand yeah. what is a credit card at the end of yeah. the day? Right. <laughs> or those like, sep- it almost feels like in a decentralized world, we could have a different protocol yeah. for each one of these pieces that are kind of yeah. come together. Yeah, I mean, you, you could imagine um, at, at the end of the day, right, returns, and chargebacks or, or returns and either seller fraud are risks. And so if there's a market for that risk and you can price that risk and there's willing and there's people who are willing to provide the liquidity that's needed for that risk, you could in theory do that on chain as well. You could simply say there's risk of seller fraud. And that is essentially what some where some of the fees come from when you use PayPal. Why is it more expensive to use PayPal? Why is it more expensive to use American Express as a business? It's because there's insurance products that are built into that. And you're, it's the price of the insurance. And so again, why not have those insurance products kind of work in a protocol on-chain that then markets can interact with and ha- not have it be tied to a particular closed-loop payment system, but be more open? So I do feel like these are pricing of risk and underwriting and providing liquidity against that risk, that is the problem. And so it's, it seems like there's ways to do that without, again, requiring like a whole closed loop kind of model. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what developers try this hackathon. I think yeah, this is yeah, like, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm really encouraged. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, it's an, it's an exciting time when, when people can start to work on, on these kinds of problems, maybe changing gears a little bit. And maybe to conclude that, like, super excited about the work that's happening in, you know, with Solana in this space with USDC and stuff and excited about what we can keep doing together. But I guess like changing gears a little bit, which is, you know, essentially the, you know, we'll call it like the scalability wars. Where are we in that journey? And I think, you know, there's sort of resiliency and robustness, which is obviously like critical. And then in terms of just the architecture for scaling itself, how are you feeling about, you know, you know what the kind of improvements that are happening with bandwidth and high-performance computing are going to mean for Solana and or other things that you're doing architecturally, like a little bit on the scalability roadmap to the degree that you're, you, you want to talk publicly about that. Yeah, I mean, all this stuff is open source and in GitHub. So if you're watching, <laughs> you kind of <laughs> see what's happening. <laughs> so some of the exciting things that are like, basically in 1.9, but we're effectively testing them at scale. We uh, reworked the accounting system, how the memory is stored. So it's not dependent on RAM. So effectively, we've been able to simulate like a, a cluster with like over, you know, I think close to 8 billion accounts running in about four terabytes. So roughly, you know, 1 billion account is about 500 gigabytes of state. 
and stable. And you can effectively throw SSDs at this and keep growing the state unlimited, right? It's limited by the, the PCI buses and how many things you can stuff in a, in a single node. But you can actually see that in theory, there's no reason why we're limited to a single piece of hardware per validator. Mm-hmm. You can actually start parallelizing this across multiple machines, but we're, we don't need that yet. <laughs> I think yeah, in, yeah. A lot, in a lot of ways, Moore's law is still moving, growing a lot faster than uh, crypto is. Like, um, right. Okay. So ado- adoption, <laughs> uh, the hardware and and hardware throughput is outpacing adoption of for now. Networks. Yeah. For yeah. now. <laughs> but that's like that's you know we know that what happens there, right? So I suspect we'll see some point where there's a very rapid inflection curve for crypto adoption, where we go from the maybe five million users that actively sign stuff in crypto per month globally, right, to 500 million. And when that happens, I think, you know, this is where it's critical for us that not only are we ready from the software perspective, like why why are we testing all this stuff? Why are you even working on this when nobody needs it? It's because we want to have this live with the hardware to when that flood of users comes that it happens on Solana. So things like that and like reliability, um, folks have been probably watching our development using Quick. Uh, this is a protocol that's kind of like fancy TCP. If, mm. if you want to dumb it down, it's developed by Google about, I think, almost 10 years ago at this point. The difference between TCP and Quick is that Quick is built on top of UDP. So it allows out of order delivery of messages. You don't get that, that kind of slow, slow performance that you see when you're making a connection and it gets blocked because there are a bunch of stuff. So mm-hmm. that low latency, fast response time is something that Quick enables and has the same security benefits of TCP. So that's a big part of our effort to improve reliability. But after that, we're still, I think, looking at dynamic fees. So part of the challenge with Solana is we didn't know how the fee markets would work on a system like this because Mm -hmm. it's a parallel system, right? So in Ethereum, you have a, a single single state, single virtual machine. A transaction can run across any part of it at any time. So it's a single threaded application, right? Right. Everything runs in a very simple sequence. Solana is not that. It's very parallelizable and multi-threaded. So the thing that we really wanted to avoid with the fee market was that fees should only rise for a hotspot activity, mm. like this specific NFT drop or the BTC USDT market that is moving really quickly shouldn't impact fees for a payment because they're not touching the same state. Mm. And this is something that we've been able to observe on chain. And I think we have a really good design now that we can move forward with. That's really interesting. (laughs) That's really interesting. (laughs) Because right, it would be pointless for fees to rise globally, right? Because Mm -hmm. of one, one activity on one part of the state even though it's not really touching anything. So effectively what we're seeing on chain is that limits for how much a single piece of data can be written to, those are Mm -hmm. being hit quite infrequently still, but sometimes, but the rest of the block is not full. So all those other transactions shouldn't see a fee increase, only that specific like lending market for whatever that trade payer is or that Radium IDO that's just launching. That's really interesting. I mean, that that would help so much with a lot of things, but yeah. What I like about this is that it really, I think is, you know, these are basically like the the last half of a percent of, I think, development of 
of how this blockchain should work is happening right now. And there's no way we could have foreseen what the mm -hmm. solutions were two mm -hmm. years ago when we didn't see all this activity, right? When we didn't see what kind of applications users are building, yeah. how are they using the chain? So we actually, I think, get to solve the right problems right now. Interesting. What What are you seeing in terms of like tooling? like more and more tooling like i know you know that that obviously when you got started it was you had to be pretty close to the metal and and you still kind of do but like but where are you seeing the kind of tooling growth because that's yeah. obviously like a, a major thing that people talk about with any of these because these are novel platforms and at the end of the day you need the the rituals and the tooling and the libraries and all that yeah we got i think still i think made the best choice of using rust as the primary language because yeah. it's a very rich expressive language it's a modern language with a modern type system and yep. what i was waiting for is effectively armani was this amazing developer not part of solana but a, a, you know the working on the serum ecosystem to take rust and then build the best application environment for devs and that happened over the last let's say six months we went from having people to kind of by hand write out which accounts go where and, and things like that to a very rich type system that is extremely secure, gives you effectively type level security, which is mm -hmm. as good as a formal formally verified in your, in your smart contract definitions. And it makes it very easy to plug that into, you know, JavaScript or client code and, and mm -hmm. rapidly build applications. That still does not is not going to find all the bugs, or you know, there's still business logic bugs. You still have to worry about arithmetic bugs, and some of those things can be detected by this really amazing team that uh, is building effectively an automatic scanner for vulnerabilities using LLVM supercompilation. So it kind of looks at your program as a giant algebraic function, and then tries to simulate it in every possible uh, way and see if it violates some some assumptions about security. And that's the combination of both of those, I think, will really allow people to write, you know, ton of, you know, rapidly develop very secure smart contracts if mm -hmm. both of those tools are used. Mm -hmm. That's cool. I'm glad to hear it. With the whatever news stories in the media are, you know, there's the talent migration from Web 2 to Web 3. I know both Solana and Circle were both hiring a lot of really interesting people <laughs> out of like great Web2 companies. So I can attest that is true, that is happening. Um, that is the biggest shift from last year, yeah. is that how many hires we're seeing coming out of Google, Facebook, like these absolutely. big, big companies. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're seeing that at every level from like individual engineers to senior leaders to everything, right? So I think that's a really huge leading indicator of you know, how big this is going to be, right? Because I think, you know, we're all aspiring to build the next great internet, you know, kind of projects. But on that note, I think one of the things that people are paying attention to are, you know, when some mainstream company, I hate to use that phrase, but like some mainstream company decides we're going to do something and we're going to do it on, you know, X, Y, X platform or this platform. And, you know, we're seeing that like, you know, Coachella or whatever with, with Solana and, and FTX, obviously, as well. But like, and you probably know about a lot of stuff that you can't talk about or whatever, but like, are there categories like that where you're kind of getting surprised or whatever, where, you know, there's just developers or, or companies that are like, we did the research and, you know, we're, we, you know, here's, here's how we're thinking about this. Yeah. Um, 
two surprises. One is how fast the NFT kind of how, how quickly folks understood NFTs at these big companies. And I think they're much more comfortable with moving fast there. Uh, it seems less risky to them. And the other surprise was how hard it is for financial institutions to get set up something as simple as USDC deposit and withdrawal. Like, <laughs> and that, that to me is like the other side of it is that like something that I feel like is obvious that should yeah. be rapidly growing in, in fintech it's yeah. hard because of regulatory uncertainty. We've got good APIs yeah, for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very simple to do, and I think would be like a very simple step forward, right? For yeah. you know, a, a big bank to do that. The NFT thing is is both surprising because I think there's a lot of a there's a lot of folks sincerely in Web two that are focused on enabling small long tail creators to make money. That's effectively what I think a lot of KPIs for a lot of them are. Like when I'm looking at my ecosystem, right? How many of these creators are actually able yeah. to financially support themselves from the activity on these platforms? So when they see an NFT as an opportunity for an individual creator to publish some digital items, which you know generate revenue for them, mon- you know monetize their work, mm-hmm. that seems like a very aligned to what a lot of Web two companies want to do, mm-hmm. and that's very aligned to with us and everything that we want to do. Right? We want to get artists that are musicians that are you know making nothing from Spotify yeah. that are able to generate like you know two three years worth of their income from a single NFT drop because that's a direct sale from that artist to their fans. Right? That's a very powerful thing. Yeah, it is. I want to come back to an ecosystem topic, which is sort of validator, validator node growth. What are you kind of seeing happen with the network itself? When we started, we had 40 validators. I think there's 1,500 block producers and like 1,300 like other nodes in the networks. I think we're at like 2,800. I think basically, I think ETH is at 5,000. So we're over 50%. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. The... Other like so, both are important. You know, final the actual security of the network depends on at least one of them being honest and providing data availability when something catastrophic happens. Yeah. So as long as we can find one, and the more you have, the more likely it is that you'll find one, and that probability becomes so high that at some point you kind of at a gut level feel like okay, this is never this data is always going to be here. I can trust the system even if. Yellowstone blows up, right? <laughs> and this is when that mental shift happens for crypto people. I feel like it's somewhere at around a thousand nodes, yeah, maybe a few hundred to a thousand. But I don't know when that mental shift will happen for like the CTO of I don't know Bank of America, right? Right? Like, right, 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 right. <laughs> well, I mean, I got to tell you, like, like for us, right, with USDC, as you know, we're we're preparing to become like a national digital currency bank we're going to be working with our regulatory counterparts and, you know, the U.S. Treasury Department or, you know, whatever, when they think about like a dollar market infrastructure and they're asking about reliability and they're asking about security and they're asking about uptime and they're asking about what happens if, you know, all these things, what happens if Russia decides to attack the network to disrupt the dollar or whatever, you know, these are like real conversations. I'm just giving you a little inside baseball here, but no, but like, these are, these are real things that have to be thought about. Maybe we can do this on air, so to speak, but help me make the case for why three years from now or five years from now, 
when maybe there's a trillion USDC in circulation and there's and there's like this widespread adoption, why this is going to be the most secure infrastructure in the world? So I think because the fundamental premise of what a layer one does is a peer-to-peer network. And this is what, you know, the, the really, uh, the, the simple example is actually using something like USDC. So if I have my keys and I have custody of my keys and I can keep that secure and Circle has a single node that they can keep secure, those both of those are solvable problems. You guys hired amazing engineers that can keep that node secure. <laughs> I can use, you know, cold storage, ledgers, right? There's a bunch of hardware devices I can use that could keep my keys secure. Yeah. The rest of the network can be totally corrupted. Right. So that's sort of the ultimate fault tolerance, right? right? Yeah, yeah. So that in that case, the money's in the in your bank. The rest of the network can be fully corrupted. There's, There's still someone else's database with the, with those dollars. But then then this kind of the transaction integrity and and then the actual proof of tokens, right? You you have at a minimum that I buy that. Um, I, I buy that. But that's good enough for something. These guarantees that nobody can convince you that I spent my dollars, right? And that that's a very that's level of security is very important to establish because. Then you can start talking about everything else. Well, what happens if there's a chain split? How do we deal with that, right? Like if there's now, you know, Russia was able to compromise a bunch of nodes and they created a chain split. And now there's one ledger that Circle accepted with USDC transfers and another one. Those processes and reconciliation, right? And the amount of security and insurance that you need to cover those, right? Based on what amounts are at risk, Mm -hmm. those are finite computable numbers, we can solve that, right? We can start solving for those and yeah. then seeing what is the cost of using the technology? What are the risk of that happening, right? And how do you mitigate against those? And fundamentally, what we're doing at the technology level is if we make the system cheaper and faster, right? And the next generation, PCI 5, those, all those things become online, then the number of nodes, the number of block producers, everything else can double or quadruple and then those attacks become much, much harder to pull off. And effectively, that means the system is cheaper to use. It's more trustworthy. Yeah. And yeah. where that mental shift happens for the Bank of America CTO, I don't know. <laughs> That's a, and, you know, well, like how about my, the bank of the bank of bank of circle CTO? Right. Right. So yeah. <laughs> those are questions that I feel like we should be asking now and getting into serious conversations with those exactly. folks. And doing the analysis and just and seeing where the weaknesses are right now and how we can improve them. Yeah, those are not only the right conversation to be having, but they are happening. I think as as more and more people start to accept that this is going to get internet scale, pretty exciting. Awesome. When you think about you know what you're most excited about in the next year, like looking back, you got a year. What you know when, when you think about the next year. Where do you, you know, if, if we're talking again in 12 months and I'm going to make sure I schedule another one of these in 12 months, but, <laughs> but what are you most excited about? So the kind of the thing that we're actively trying to enable is all these new entrepreneurs to launch their projects, launch, launch their products. That is the most important thing that we're working on. We're obviously talking to bigger companies and, and, those, and helping them make their technology choices and things like that. But what I want to see is, you know, if we have a thousand use, if we actually hit a thousand uh, teams building something in this hackathon, ten thousand, right? Like, can we make this even bigger? If because if that's happening, right? If you actually get to a point where there's thousands of devs 
building something, then the 100 million users are just around the corner, right? You cannot stop that wave. <laughs> Absolutely. We can build products, right, internally, and we do sometimes, uh, but that's just maybe two, three products a year, right? Multiply that by a thousand. That's when you get into something interesting, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I, I think that's right. I think I like to, you know, one of the things I like to sort of say is a lot of times people, when they think about, you know, whatever USDC specifically, right? It's like, oh, okay, this is going to make, you know, faster, cheaper, more secure payments or whatever. Like, I mean, yes, yes. But that's not the point. The point is like, programmable dollars on the internet. The point is that this is like composable into any kind of application. And I'm like, we don't actually know what people are going to invent. Like, we just don't know like the creativity that people are going to have. And when you think about all the other things that people are creating, then this can kind of interact with. That's what I'm most excited about. I'm excited about what I don't know. <laughs> like yeah, what I have, <laughs> you know. And so I think a big part of our jobs, right, is just like, just getting people to see that they have these tools and they have these capabilities. And, you know, I think about USDC is like, it's the dollar with su internet superpowers. <laughs> and, you know, and so what, what can you build with that, you know, and what you can build with that in software. But anyway, very cool stuff. Totally great to catch up. And I'm glad we could uh, put together this conversation. Absolutely. Anytime. Bye.